Hello, everybody. You're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. Today, my guest is UCI Professor Andrew Neumer, who is a public health scientist with a focus on infectious disease. His research straddles the biological and social domains to get a clearer understanding of pandemic patterns. Two weeks ago, on March 10th, 2020, Dr. Neumer was on this very program. In some ways, it seems like two years ago. At that time, the World Health Organization had not yet declared COVID-19 a pandemic. The NBA basketball season was still going strong, and work-school life was pretty much normal, except there was foreboding in the air. What struck me about Professor Neumer's interview then was his urge to remind listeners multiple times that the information we were discussing was current only to that day. Numerous times he described a potential 24-month cycle for this coronavirus, which at the time nobody was even imagining, and that in two weeks or so, there would be only a few small towns in the USA which still did not have any corona cases. He is an expert in this field. Note we are practicing social distancing right now with this phone Zoom interview. Welcome, Dr. Neumer. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to your KUCI listeners again. Dr. Norman, could you give us a, an update of, of, of where we're at? It, it's stunning for the general public. It, it is affecting us at so many levels. It's really, uh, it's, it's been a whirlwind of a, of a two weeks since I spoke to you last, Kevin. And um, I mean, I, th- I think the focus of our last conversation was to get a lot of basic information out in terms of, you know, what people needed to know. And I, I think we spoke about how this is a, caused by a virus and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But right now it, you know, like you said in the introduction, it feels like two years almost. I mean, I think everyone knows by now what COVID-19 or COVID or, you know, it, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, everyone knows what that is. And everyone knows it's a threat. Uh, I think I think some people still don't quite understand some of the contours of how big a threat uh, it it is. And I, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that during this podcast or broadcast. But yeah, it's it's been a, a whirlwind, uh, and there's just it's events are moving rapidly. Uh, as we said at the uh, top of our previous recording, uh, that the events were current only uh, on that day. And so this is being recorded in the afternoon Pacific time of Thursday, March 26th, 2020. And so if you're listening to this on a tape delay, please understand that the information is current as of that date. I would like to add, though, that I I think a lot of the things I said on the last episode sort of held up in terms of, uh, you know, I I said that the WHO hadn't declared it a pandemic, but that it, it was a pandemic for all intents and purposes. And not to get hung up on official declarations. And I, and I believe it was, it was certainly less than 48 hours after we recorded that conversation that it, it, it the WHO reclassified it as a pandemic. So right. and the other, and, and the other thing is I, I spoke about how in Italy, the um, professional soccer matches were being played in empty stadia with just TV cameras and no spectators. Mm-hmm. And of course now uh, they're not being played at all. <laughs> So not even the pl- players on the field, but also, uh, of course, since then, you know, March Madness was canceled and the NBA w- was, I mean, all the American professional sports were either canceled or put on hiatus. So, you know, it's it, the, 
some of the things that I said were sort of coming down the pike, I think have, have come true. No, absolutely. You know, what's really interesting is that when people were talking about, there was like, Oh, well, we just won't have fans in the stands thinking that it was like they were separate. And I know I, myself in covering this topic, oftentimes I would be like talking about the issues and so forth, not really considering how it would really affect my personal life. And I think in the NBA or whatever, you know, it was like, oh, we'll, we'll just have these games. Like the NBA players were insulated from that. And in fact, I think it was that very night that I interviewed you where the first NBA player came down with it. And then everything just, the, the dominoes just started t- tumbling. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, we're not kidding when we say these are fast moving events and please check the date stamp of right. the recording because I think it, it was just a few hours after we spoke last that, you know, the events, some of the events started to change. And, uh, you know, at first, uh, and also the March Madness uh, NCAA, for, for those of you who may be listening, you know, this is going out all over the world, I, I know, on, on the internet. So for those of you listening in Europe, March Madness is the American college basketball uh, elimination tournament. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, so the March Madness, you know, at first they said, well, we'll do the same. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll play games, but there will be no spectators. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's an excellent first step, but an even better step is just to call it off. Mm-hmm. Because you have, you have 10 players and, and referee uh, out on the, on the basketball court, mm-hmm. and they can all expose each other. Right. Did, did you foresee that, Professor, that, you know, yeah, excellent first step not to have fans, but, it, you know, in hindsight, you're like, well, yeah, that was never, never going to work. Well, here's the, here's the thing, Kevin. I mean, it's, it's more than just 10 players out on right. a basketball court. I mean, there's a, there are coaches. There right. are uh, physios. There are the, the, uh, the, the team. Referees referees there are teams beyond uh, those who are starting so it's more right. than 10 more than right. 10 aside or more than 10 uh, total and and there are cameramen and then right. and then there are all of these people who have to get on planes and fly to the venues or get right. on a bus and drive to the venues right. and it's bigger than just five people playing basketball against five other people so i was saying that they should call these things off and i tweet on the subject, uh, my Twitter is at Andrew Neumert, with my first name and last name, and A-N-D-R-E-W-N-O-Y-M-E-R. And I've been consistently saying that these events should be canceled. But, you know, at first when myself and there there have been others saying things like this, you know, people were kind of shocked and they thought this was going way overboard. And so, you know, if I have a choice between business as usual and just doing it in an empty arena with, with no spectators, you know, obviously – the empty arena with no spectators is is better than uh, a packed arena. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'll choose the better over the worst uh, course of action any day of the week. Yeah, and, right. you know, as, you know, as we just discussed, you know, even better, <laughs> the best is just calling it off. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, crowning a, a basketball uh, champion of the college competition in 2020 is, is not more important than the health yeah. and, welfare yeah. of everybody. Professor, you studied pandemics before. Do you have a specific pandemic that you were, you know, you particularly studied the hardest, whether it was HIV or Spanish flu, or was there one that you were, you know, particularly focused on? Yeah. The 1918 influenza pandemic, uh-huh. 
which is also sometimes referred to as the Spanish flu mm-hmm. and is sometimes referred to as the 1918-19 pandemic because it, it sort of it, it, it spilled over into the next years. Yeah. Uh, that's my, that was, uh, you know, to the extent to which I, I specialize in, in the single pandemic, it's, it's that one. And uh, it's, there's a lot of lessons for that for what we're going through now. I, go ahead. And so, of course, you know, 1918, there was no airline travel, right? So that would have really slowed everything down. True? Yes, there was no air, airline travel, you know, internationally. There were airplanes, you know, but there was no airline travel the way we know it. And, you, you know, travel long distances was by rail, if, if it was um, continental, mm-hmm. and by steamship, if mm-hmm. it was, you know, uh, across large, large you know, continental distances. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of interesting stories about, um, you know, Australia had a maritime quarantine, so no ships in or out uh, without, well, no ships in without, uh, without them the being, being uh, forced to wait, you know, mm-hmm. and we've seen a lot of people waiting on ships during this, uh, during the last fortnight. But mm. the, the point was, uh, you know, they understood that you could introduce the virus uh, through people. Well, I should, I should clarify that in 1918, they didn't understand that it was a virus. So they, they actually thought it was maybe a bacterium or something, but, but they understood that, that it was contagious and that, and, and so the ships needed to be quarantined and that quarantine didn't break down until 1919. So the flu, the flu pandemic actually came a year later to Australia because they were uh, more circumspect than some other countries and their, their neighbor, New Zealand did not do the same. And they experienced uh, an outbreak in 1918. Mm. And there are similar stories with uh, American Samoa and uh, Western Samoa um, mm. and, uh, you know, where there was a quarantine in one and not in the other. And again, these are maritime quarantines. There was, as you point out, there was no, there was no uh, airlines. And- so I understand that they did not do a um, social distancing, right? I mean, life went on. Is, is that, is that true? Well, no, that's not entirely accurate. I mean, they they didn't call it social distancing. I uh, think that's a more modern term. Uh, uh, but but there were some locales where they didn't do much, and there were other locales where they canceled rallies to buy war bonds. I'm, I'm talking about the U.S. experience right mm-hmm. now. But uh, the, the U.S. had been, uh, you know, a late entrant to the the First World War, and uh, in the fall of 1918, we were sending uh, uh, troops to to Europe to fight in France, and so there were there were rallies to sell war bonds, and there were just generally speaking parades, you, you know, to for patriotism during wartime and you know and whatnot. And so, some communities canceled these, and others didn't. And some communities closed the schools, and others didn't. Philadelphia kind of famously didn't close the schools and experienced a very severe pandemic mm. in, in 1918. And, and St. Louis famously did close the schools and experienced a mild pandemic. But there are other examples. And, and the, uh, there was a study done um, where they analyzed, you know, the extent to which these so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions were practiced. And non-pharmaceutical interventions is just kind of a technical term for this social distancing. A- anything involving other intervention other than taking, you know, some sort of drugs for, for treatment or prophylaxis. So the, the, the correlation is, is strong between, well, it's relatively strong, between the extent to which there was social distancing back then 
and the extent to which uh, the communities escaped the worst of it. So there, I think there was less of a nationwide order from uh, uh, the federal government to to practice social distancing, and there was it was more left up to the municipalities. Mm. Although e- even so, we're seeing that now with various states having various um, levels of adherence. Mm. Uh, or not, I, I shouldn't say adherence, but various states having various levels of uh, imposition of uh, requested and or required uh, social distancing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, are we going to get through this? Well, I mean, I think we will get through this. And, and there's a, 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 a few things I would point out. Yes. I mean, we're not going to get through this unscathed. Okay. I mean, there's already been, you know, mortality, uh, in, in the U S and, uh, um, and, you know, and there will be more. Uh, so, I mean, I think we're at about a thousand in the United States, about a thousand people have died. Yeah. No, there, there, there are close to 3 million, you know, somewhere between two and a half and 3 million deaths every year in the U S. So, I mean, uh, you know, we're going to, and we're going to see more COVID deaths before this is over. Believe me. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and but, so I mean, it's not, it's not. Um, you know, you asked if we're going to get through this. I mean, we're not, we're not at the dystopian sci-fi uh, novel uh, level yet mm-hmm. in terms of the mortality. So just, just keep that in mind. Although that doesn't mean we, we, uh, that doesn't mean we can't, uh, we shouldn't take it extremely seriously, mm-hmm. because. You know, if, if hospitals become overrun such that business as usual for them becomes as po- becomes impossible, then we will see more and more and more mortality. And um, so it's uh, there's, you know, plenty to worry about. But, um, you know, we got through the, the country got through the 1918 influenza, which uh, killed over 600,000 Americans. Um, and the U.S. population was about one third as big as it is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, due to some peculiarities of the virus, uh, it actually killed people preferentially sort of uh, in middle age, like uh, 20, 20 to 45 year olds. Yeah. As, um, so the 1918 influenza epidemic from a, a what we call disease burden, from, it, was, it was a very burdensome, it was a very impactful event, like much more so than this will be. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I, I just think it's important to remember that, um, you know, we will get through it from the health perspective. And then the other question is, well, the economic perspective. Right, right. And, you know, we're going to get through it from that too. And it's going to be uh, impactful economically because, you know, we're doing all the social distancing. Restaurants are either closed or only doing takeout. And even the ones that are only doing takeout, uh, I think for the most part are doing vastly diminished business. And there's so much knock on effects. You know, if they're only doing takeout, then the wait staff are laid off. Uh, if they're closing entirely, then everyone's laid off. And, you know, and, the, and then, you know, restaurant industry is by far not the only industry affected and so on and right. so on. So th- there is going to be a recession coming out of this. And I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think, it's sort of already been officially called, but in any case, you know, uh, we don't need to dwell on the uh, officialdom. I mean, there's going to be a recession coming out of this. And, you know, but we survived the Great Depression. So, you know, I mean, 
is it going to be, you know, is it going to be great? <laughs> uh, you know, is this going to be a wonderful time period in the history of the country? Absolutely not. It's going to be a dark uh, time period. But, you know, will we get, you asked, will we get through this? And the answer is absolutely we will. Good. A couple of weeks ago, we were taking questions and I was surprised at your answers just because I, I would think a certain thing and, and there would be differences and your insights were remarkable. I have a question here, Tammy from Santa Maria. What is your educated prediction of what the future looks like? Will we be able to eradicate COVID-19 or will it be around forever? That's an excellent question, Tammy. And my educated guess right now is that it will be around forever in some way, shape, or form. It's possible that it will go away. I mean, you can call it eradication. The way that SARS kind of did, the original 2003 SARS, but for that to happen on its own is increasingly looking impossible because it's just so far out of the bottle compared to SARS. And then the question is, you know, well, what about with a vaccine? Well, it's possible, but we just don't have a time frame on when we'll get a vaccine. So I don't want to start making predictions about how the vaccine is going to eradicate this. And the other thing to keep in mind is that there's only one human disease that's ever been eradicated, and that was smallpox. Mm. And so, and that was, uh, it was eradicated. The last uh, natural smallpox infection was in 1979. Eradication was declared formally in uh, it was sort of a two-step declaration. The late 1979, it was sort of declared, and then the eradication was certified by the World Health Organization in, in, in May of 1980. And so I think coronavirus is in the human population now, it's, uh, and it's not going to go away like SARS did because it's, it's worldwide. And it's, it's probably not going to be eradicated even fully, even with the help of a vaccine. But what's going to happen is it's going to be part of the... Uh, the common cold landscape. Mm. So right now there are four coronaviruses, type one, two, three, four, that cause the common cold. And this one will evolve to be like number five. So it will mm. still be with us and it will cause the common cold. There's a tendency for these viruses to evolve towards less, not more virulence. And also there are a tendency for people who, who have the unfortunate kind of receptors on their respiratory cells or whatever that, that cause them to get a, a really bad reaction to this virus. Those people will be the ones who tend to have the severest reactions and there'll be a selection away from that in the future. So I think, I mean, the best case scenario is, is that we'll eradicate it, but I think that's kind of pie in the sky. And then the next best case scenario is that after a tumultuous 24 to 48 months, it will just become like another cold, a cold virus. So we'll, we'll get it, but, it won't cause you know any of this that we're experiencing now. And then sort of a little bit less rosy scenario is that it, it will be in the human population and it will be like another influenza. So it'll be like every winter there'll, there'll be like the, the flu season and the COVID season. Hmm. And it'll, it'll be like flu in the sense that it'll, it'll kill, you know, some people, mostly elderly every, every winter. Uh, but it won't, so it'll be more severe than a common cold, but it won't be like what we're experiencing now. So we're not in a permanent crisis 
you know, that's going to last decades. You know, it's going to become more normal. And uh, I can't guarantee that it won't be, you know, a seasonal phenomenon like flu that is, that is sort of nothing to be laughed at because, but it's probably more likely that it will be like another common cold floating around out there. But, you know, it's it's far too early to say, you know, which of those scenarios is going to turn out. And, the next 12 months, you know, I think are going to be difficult. So, I mean, the, all this social isolation is not the new normal for the rest of our lives, but it's going to be weeks, if not months. So anyone who's thinking it's going to be days or a few weeks, I'm sorry to say. it's. Uh, so the president came out yesterday or the day before talking about Easter, things loosening up. Do I hear you saying that that's not what you would recommend? I mean, to put it, as kindly as I can put it, that's wildly optimistic. And we have to keep monitoring the situation, but I would say a far more realistic time when we can come out of all this social distancing is the first of June. And so, I mean, I think there's enough said there about the the timing of Easter versus the first of June. And uh, I mean, nobody has a crystal ball and, the experts, uh, I have one of those magic eight balls, but it's, uh, um, you know, with the right. prediction device inside of it, but I don't have a crystal ball. So nobody knows for sure. There's mathematical modelers who try to uh, forecast as best they can using the models, but it's too early to, to say for sure. It's just my educated guess is something around June 1st, but that will be updated as, as we move along in time. But, uh, but Easter is coming up and um, I, I think it's, overly optimistic to say that we'll be out of the woods by then. And let me just add a little bit of why I say that because I'm not just sort of here conjuring up some, uh, some dark clouds and, you know, telling all of your listeners that they need to be holed up until June 1st, but the two hardest hit countries outside of China are Spain and Italy. Mm -hmm. And they have surges of cases in both of those countries and as we discussed a little bit at the top of the episode, and both of those countries are doing social distancing, so it's not like they're taking it lightly. But in spite of their efforts, they still have surges of cases. And they have surges of deaths. And part of the reason is that their hospitals are overwhelmed, so not everyone is getting the standard of care that they would normally get for a pneumonia. And the surge of cases is continuing. So it's not just a peak and then a, a diminution. It's like more like a plateau. So it, it's been a few weeks now and the Italian hospitals are overwhelmed. And it's very similar in Spain, except it's been delayed about a week. So it's not, it's not like a health crisis in terms of like seven days of incredible crush of patients and then the doctors can breathe. It's, it's a serious situation. So that's ongoing. And so New York City is starting to experience something similar as of this date. So, you know, the United States is a big enough country that there's going to be a patchwork of different start times. But we are uh, going to have to be in this for the long haul. Italy and Spain are experiencing several weeks so far of severe case numbers. And so I'm not just saying, oh, June 1st, because, uh, you know, because uh, I just sort of uh, feel like it or whatever. I'm I'm trying to extrapolate as best I can from the European experience. Mm -hmm. 
you know, stirring in some knowledge of what's happening in New York City. And, you know, it, I'd, I'd be happy to go on your show the next episode and say, well, I was wrong. It's going to be May 1st, not June 1st. Um, right. And I will be sad to go on your episode, next episode and say it's going to be July 1st. Mm-hmm. And the truth is no, nobody knows exactly, but it's, it's, we're talking weeks. And Easter is coming up very soon. Right. And so that's just why I say, you know, based on everything we know, Easter is just uh, uh, too optimistic. Yes. What do you say to, as we start to set into this reality of the seriousness of this, recessions are serious, depressions are serious, your research straddles the biological and social domains. I mean, there are people who have said to me, why are we doing all this stuff? Just let it ride. You know, we lose a, a certain amount of number of people to the flu every year and it, no one wants it. Right. You know, we're balancing, you know, boy, if we go into a depression, I mean, are, can you comment on that? Yeah. It's, it, well, it's a very, I, I can, I'll, I'll do my, I'll do my best to sort of guide your listeners through, through the minefield here, but it's, it's very uh, complicated with lots of, uh, angles, you know, and I mean, one is that, you know, if we shut down the economy and there's, then we cause financial pain to, to millions of households. And when we cause financial pain to millions of households, there are consequences. And so we don't want to make the remedy worse than the disease. Mm-hmm. But it's important to recognize that you know, we've been through recessions before, we've been through the Great Depression, and there are ways we can address recessions, both during and in their immediate aftermath. You know, there's already talk about a, a relief bill in Congress, and, you know, something like that is going to have to be implemented. And I think, you know, the, I'm a nonpartisan um, commentator, I stick to the to the science and the social science, not to, I don't get involved in the, in the politics of it, but I mean, I think it's, it's, and I fair to say that both sides of the political aisle in this country are, are agreeing that there's going to have to be some sort of government intervention. And I realize that there are, that they are, you know, debating the, the details of that, uh, you know, as, as politicians will do, but I mean, but that we can, we can remedy the social aspects, even though, you know, it doesn't mean that pain won't be felt, but, but we can't remedy death. Death is final. <laughs> Right. By definition, death is final. So, and, and we are talking about a disease that will be, uh, fatal. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, you know, that, that the health impacts of economic slowdowns, you know, are typically not, you know, that enormous compared to what this is going to do to mm-hmm. our health system if we let it go unchecked. And lastly, well, there's two other things I would add. You know, if the hospitals become overwhelmed, they, they really become overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think a lot of Americans haven't fully realized how severe things are in Italy and Spain. And like, don't, you know, don't, 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 don't get an appendicitis, you know, during, during this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you might not be able to get the life-saving appendectomy that you need. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you avoid getting an appendicitis? Well, you can't. It's just right. right. It's, it's, it just happens to a very small number of people every year. But it, we have to be uh, careful about you know just saying, "Well, let's get it over with in some short, sharp shock," and let the virus just wind its way through the population. 
doing that will crush the health system. What we need to do is flatten the curve. Right. And, the, and by now your listeners have heard this expression about, you know, basically just everyone's going to, well, maybe not everybody, but a large number, before this can go away, a large number of people are going to have to get it and get immune. And then for that to happen, a lot of people have to get it. And the question is, why not just get it over with? And I mean, the UK government tried that and people, and then they came to their realization that it wasn't going to work. It's going to crush the health system. And so, and we need to avoid that. We need to spread out this curve. You know, we want people getting this, you know, in, in August, not now. We want people spreading this curve out as much as possible because that way we, the healthcare system can survive. And the, the last thing I wanted to point out is there's kind of this myth out there that it, it's really only severe among the elderly and that, you know, that we can we can sort of take care of the elderly in the hospitals, but everyone else who gets it is just going to be like a cold. And this is one of those things. It's a, it's a nuance, and and people want black and white answers, but I've got for you instead. I've got shades of gray. So for many younger people, for many people under sixty, it will be a very mild syndrome. It will be like a cold, but it's increasingly clear that that's not the whole story. For many people under sixty, it will land you in the hospital. For a good 10% or more of cases below 60, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a severe syndrome. We're talking hospitalization here. People say, well, why haven't there been more deaths among young people then in, in Italy, for example? And the answer is actually kind of shocking. But young people, in, the hospitals in Italy are so overrun that they're prioritizing the, the highest standard of care to the younger people. So the ventilator, mechanical ventilation for those who have breathing uh, difficulties is, is reserved to the under 60. And so wow. that is actually a life-saving therapy, and it does work. But there's not enough mechanical ventilators for everyone. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's happening is they're prioritizing younger people, and younger people are being saved. And so you're not, seeing, you're not seeing very many deaths in younger people. But it's... An, error to conclude from that, that younger people aren't being severely um, impacted. Some, some of them are, they're just being saved and the older people uh, are not. And they're, and they're, that's where the mortality is concentrated. And so that's why most of the Italian mortality is above age 60 and the average age is, well, on at least one statistic, I saw the average age of COVID mortality in Italy is 81 years, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's just that um, there's a prioritization of younger people. So we really don't want to uh, replicate that in the U.S. if it's at all avoidable. And we don't want to make the wrong conclusion from the Italian data that it's only severe among the elderly. It's only killing the elderly, but that's because of uh, triage, triage, Mm -hmm. the rationing of healthcare. So, and so, it's a very serious situation. I mean, I, I can't impress upon your listeners enough how serious the situation is. If, if they haven't um, fully uh, appreciated the depth of the situation in Spain and Italy, and, and I know that a lot of Americans haven't, um, you know, I don't have a lot of good news, unfortunately, for, for your listeners on that point. Gotcha. Uh, Doctor, let me take a m- moment. Um, if you join us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI public health professor and pandemic expert, Dr. Andrew Neumer. 
discussing where we are with the COVID-19 trajectory. Doctor, there was a recent opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal. This is a question from Diana in Orange County, and she talks about the op-ed piece discussed exposing young people, then putting resulting immune people to work as medical personnel. Have you heard of this suggestion? And is that- uh, I, I haven't heard of it per se. I mean, I mean, um, I don't mean to be a Dr. Dark Cloud here, but the, I mean, w- one aspect is we're, we're still not fully sure of what the contours are of the longevity of the immunity. Some diseases like measles and to a lesser extent, chickenpox and so on, in which if you are exposed to the disease and you survive, then you are immune for, for life. And Ebola, actually, which is another sort of scary virus that we've had, uh, the uh, is, is also like that. So, I mean, it, it, it's something that occurs in, with many uh, pathogens that we, we get exposed and then we get um, immune for life. So we, we, we're not fully sure how that works in this yet. And, and some evidence suggests that the antibody response, the, the, the immunity is not durable. So just the idea that we're going to get a bunch of immune people and then that'll be the healthcare workforce is this, too early to say yet, first of all. And then, and then second of all, I mean, as I, as I explained uh, earlier in the segment, you know, there are severe cases in younger people. So to the extent that they're, you can't really do that without some risk. There's no, there's no pursuing that, that strategy without a certain amount of risk. So I think social distancing on everyone's part is going to have to be the strategy. Gotcha. This is a question comes from Marie down in Laguna Beach. I was talking to somebody in the field today, expressed concern about whether an effective vaccine could ever be developed, especially with the way that viruses mutate and general inability to vaccinate against a lot of infections. Then she talks about the herd uh, immunity uh, might be what we're ultimately left as a defense. Let me address that. Well, I hope she was talking to someone standing six feet apart or on the telephone, but there's different kinds of vaccines in terms of different kinds of pathogens. So the measles vaccine, which was introduced in 1964, they did some tinkering with the formulation of it in the 60s. But basically, the vaccine we're using today is the same vaccine as we used back then, I mean, more or less. So, so with measles, we have an effective vaccine, and it hasn't changed in formulation. We give the same one every year. And you only need it twice in your life, maybe a third booster at some point. But then you get lifetime immunity through the vaccination. But with flu, we have a a virus that's a little sneaky and it evolves. Mm. And the viral evolution means that we need a flu shot every year. And there's been work on a flu shot that is so-called universal, which means that you won't need a new one every year, that it gives you protection against any kind of strain of flu. Wow, And there's been a lot of work on that for well over a decade, and it hasn't paid off yet. So when you're talking about a COVID vaccine, you know, the options are we just never are able to develop one that works, or we develop one, but we're going to need to update it like the flu vaccine, or we develop one and it just, it it totally works. And then uh, that's obviously the the best case. We, We just don't know. Vaccines... It's easy to develop a candidate vaccine. It's harder to make sure uh, to, to to make sure it works. It needs to be tested. 
There are three levels of testing. There's safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy. So the safety is the easiest to describe. It's just you give the vaccine to 100 uh, healthy volunteers and you, you make sure that, the adverse, uh, that there are no adverse effects. And then phase two trials are uh, immunogenicity. And you give it to a larger group of people and, you, and, you, and then you take their blood samples for, and look for evidence that it elicited an, an immune response. And obviously you keep looking for adverse events to make sure it's safe. But, and then once, once you've analyzed the phase two trial data and you say, okay, well, the people who received this vaccine, it generated an immune response. Then you do phase three where you look at for efficacy. And then you see, well, out of, you know, a thousand or 2000 or more people, half of whom were randomly assigned the vaccine, half of whom were randomly assigned a, a, a placebo shot. How many of them, you know, get sick. And so, and that's where the rubber meets the road. And so it's, it's going to take 12 months, I think at the minimum before you can go to your local pharmacy, roll up your sleeve, uh, give them a copay and, uh, and get your shot. So, I've been saying all along that I don't want people to obsess about uh, vaccination because the, the lab scientists who need to work on it are working on it around the clock and will know, believe me, you will know when you can go get your flu shot. Mm -hmm. And until then, I mean, nobody is, is dragging their feet on that. I assure you until then we just have to, place our faith in social distancing. We cannot count on the vaccine being the cavalry to come down the hill and save the day. Here's a question from uh, Norm and Franny. Uh, hopefully you can shed some light on it. Want to learn more about potential protease inhibiting molecules that could stop current COVID-19 viral. Yeah, there's been, there's been a lot of talk about protease inhibitors. These are uh, chemical, these are drugs that are antiviral. Um, I mean, they're, they're working on trials of, uh, of a number of antiviral drugs and they're work, working also on some drugs of uh, some, that I would call kind of Hail Marys. So the chloroquine stuff that a lot of your listeners will have heard about chloroquine is a, a, a anti-malaria drug and it's kind of uh, it's a, it's a powerful molecule and I mean, it's, it's relatively well tolerated in terms of it doesn't have, you know, severe side effects. I wouldn't say it's side effect free, but, um, and, and there was this idea that started in France that, well, maybe the chloroquine, you know, um, w would help. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, we're, and the, the, as better, we still don't have a definitive answer to that question. As better evidence has come in, the answer to that seems to be tentatively no. I know that some people have been trying to get their hands on that stuff and, mm -hmm. uh, what I would say is uh, we really don't know yet. They're, they're doing studies. It's, it's, it's probably not. Uh, the protease inhibitors are probably more promising, but I can't emphasize enough that, you know, it's a bit like the vaccines in terms of when science knows that something is, is working really well, then, then we'll, we'll all hear about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but generally speaking, um, antiviral drugs are, are much trickier than uh, antibacterial drugs. So antibacterial drugs, sometimes, you know, just called uh, antibiotics, um, you know, are, are, are something I think a lot of people are familiar with, the penicillin, amoxicillin, uh, 
and uh, vancomycin and, and uh, Bactrim and other, you know, there are other trade names and, and scientific names. But, uh, I mean, everyone sort of gets it when you have strep throat. You can take uh, a course of antibiotics and it will go away. And antiviral drugs are much, uh, much trickier because uh, of differences, I mean, of, of how viruses sort of hijack our own um, cells, whereas uh, bacteria are cells of their own growing inside their, our bodies. And so uh, it's, we don't have a, a huge uh, armament of, of drugs that we can just pull off the shelf. And, and so it's, it's tricky. I mean, uh, yeah. social, social distancing is the, uh, is the thing that's going to help us all get through this. And I know it's, uh, I know it's, it's, it's painful, but, uh, and, and people are getting tired of it already. Uh, but it's, it's, we really need to show our steel. I, I feel like this is a generational challenge. This is our gener generation's um, big uh, event and, and people, mm. the future is going to judge us by um, how, uh, how we respond. How we, yeah, exactly. exactly. Here's a, a little bit of a different take uh, from Kevin in Costa Mesa. There have been rumors, maybe disproven, that uh, COVID-19 got transmitted to humans from pagolins uh, and bats. Are, are there, uh, re well, it, is that true? And then also as a follow-up, are there any reports of other mammals getting the virus, specifically dogs and cats? Yeah, that's a great question from Kevin in Costa Mesa. So we know this is an emerging virus, and viruses emerge into humans from the animal kingdom. And it's certainly another mammal, uh, a wild mammal, that had this virus and was transmitted into humans. So uh, pangolins are a uh, suspect and bats. And bats are often implicated in these emerging disease outbreaks because they're mammals, of course. And they fly great distances, so they can interact with many different kinds of other species. So bats are sometimes a bridge species between, you know, something else and, hu and humans. And bats, they poop, you know, for lack of a more discreet way to put it. So, uh, so they're, you know, the, the, there's a potential for viral transmission even if, um, even if we don't interact with um, the the bat directly. I mean, mm. most people are sort of. Uh, have a sort of revulsion uh, from from bats, but um, we, we know that their uh, their urine and feces can transmit diseases, and with Nipah virus, that's uh, what happens. And so, um, so the pangolin and the bat, I'm I'm afraid to say, uh, Kevin and Costa Mesa, that, that, that there's this is not a rumor that's been completely disproven. It's something that's still being investigated. And um, you know, we know that humans come into contact with pangolins; that they're a trafficked animal. And their scales, their, their keratinous scales are, uh, are used, um, in traditional, uh, rituals and traditional medicine. So, you know, the, the humans do come into contact with, with them and, uh, it's kind of a, it's almost an anteater, uh, like creature. So, you know, we have a sort of here at UC Irvine, we have kind of a, uh, an affinity for, for anteater like creatures like aardvarks and, and pangolins, but, uh, and anteaters, of course, but, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely something, I mean, and if it wasn't a pangolin or a bat, then it was some other animal. So it, these, these emerging diseases come from the animal kingdom. So, um, you know, if pangolins and bats are off the hook, um, as we learn more about the research here, then it's going to be some other critter. So unfortunately, uh, these, 
diseases come from critters. Now, as far as the dogs and cats question goes, yes. there was some early evidence that showed that seemed to show that dogs could get it, but the latest is that uh, they cannot. So your dog and your cat are safe. You can, uh, you can keep playing with your dog and your cat, and you can keep walking your dog. Oh, uh, I guess you don't walk your cat, but uh, household animals are safe. Gotcha. Uh, it's amazing when we saw the trajectory in, in China, specifically Wuhan, and how that was just a, a steep exponential increase. And then the Chinese just, it just flattened out and it is stuck there. Are we doing what they did? Can we do what they did? Please give us your impressions. Yeah, well, it began in there and uh, the social distancing that was done in Wuhan and, and elsewhere in, in mainland China is much more comprehensive than, than what, we're, what we've been doing. And I know that, you know, people are already sort of chafing under the social distancing regime that we have here. And none of this is to make light of the, the real economic pain that many people are feeling in terms of lost wages and uh, lost income and you know, lost social opportunities. But what we're doing in California and in other parts of the United States pales in comparison to what was done in Hubei province and elsewhere in China. I mean, there was a, there was a lock, a real lockdown. We're, we're calling these lockdowns, but what, what happened in China was a genuine lockdown where uh, there was police enforcement of no one on the streets. And, uh, and a real, a much stricter regime of social distancing. So now the United States is a, is a democracy um, where freedom of movement is, uh, you know, something we take for granted. And China has a different political model of how government works. And the government under even normal circumstances plays a, uh, a different role in people's day-to-day lives in terms of uh, widespread deployment, official recognition uh, by the government and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we don't have time, I think, to discuss all, all of those dimensions. And, but I mean, I think it's just, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to do the Chinese style uh, social isolation here. Uh, we, we can come maybe close to it, but it's not going to be quite as uh, effective and so, I mean, I still think we can beat the virus here. It's going to take doing, continuing the social distancing we are doing for quite some weeks. And, uh, I mean, there's really no point in talking about Chinese-style social distancing here because we're having trouble even fully implementing what we are doing. So, I mean, the, the governor um, at one of his press conferences described how he, he wanted people out of the state parks. And people didn't really uh, obey that order. I mean, and so then he closed the state park parking lots. So if you can't, mm-hmm. if you can't drive to the park and park in the parking lot, then it's hard to go for your hike or go to the, the to the mm-hmm. state beach. So, you know, we're having a hard enough time enforcing what we are doing, and it's really not probably productive to talk about uh, stricter. Mm-hmm. But but if we but I'm more interested in the time duration. If we can keep this up for weeks without losing our our medal, that would be wonderful. So it sounds like what you're describing in China is like they literally weren't allowed to leave their home? In the extreme cases, yes. Food, food was de- delivered. Mm. I mean, people weren't left to starve to death in their own home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but food was delivered. Gotcha. So yes, uh, yeah. uh, people were, were off the streets 
entirely. Here's the last question I have uh, from Suzanne in San Francisco. Why does the virus have a tendency to peak and then decline? There are still many millions of people who have not contracted it yet. Why does it just keep spreading exponentially? Well, it's exactly because, well, we're not detecting them all. So there's cases that we don't know about. And I mean, we're not being super disciplined about sheltering in place. I mean, in terms of essential businesses are, are still open and people are still going out and interacting with each other at the margins. And, and remember, there's always a delay. So the virus has a serial interval of five to seven days. So it could be a little longer, but it's a distribution. So it's not exactly five, six, seven days. But the point is that the time between cases is five to seven days. So the cases we keep seeing now are ones that were that were transmitted five to seven days ago. So, and most of the population is still susceptible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the virus is like a, uh, well, this whole epidemic is like a forest fire. It's like a spark running through some under underbrush. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if if Cal fire doesn't come to put it out, uh, when does it stop burning? And it it stops burning, you know, either when the rain comes, I, I guess the rain would be like a vaccine metaphor or something or when, you know, all the brush is burned up. And so, so few people have gotten it yet that so few people are immune. So there's still a lot of underbrush there ready to be burned, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. So we're not out of the woods yet at all. Doctor, thank you so much for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. It's my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to your listeners. We'll be in touch and please keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Thank you.